In any case, I, I'm sure they want too much. There's no way I would pay more than $5 million for that violin. And I made no bones about my dissatisfaction or the fact that I was not going to pay more than $5 million. I was agonizing over it because I really wanted the violin. I mean, why collect things? Well, you develop at some point sort of a uh, endemic, green-eyed craving and lust for these things. I really wanted that violin. So the time came to send in the bid. I sort of said to myself, do I want it or do I not want it? So I bid $6 million. Welcome to Rosin the Bow, a radio journey through the world of the violin family. Hi, I'm Joe McHugh. When we were first considering a title for this radio series, we decided to use the phrase violin family because it has a dual meaning. It refers to the family of instruments that include the violin, viola, and cello, but it also refers to the human family of those whose lives have been shaped in one way or another by the violin. This includes musicians and violin makers, the owners of violin shops and string teachers, tonewood dealers and rosin makers. Well, there is another member of this unique family, and that is the violin collector. Almost as long as there have been violins, there have been collectors. They have come from every walk of life, from the ranks of lowly carpenters to the members of noble families. What they do share in common is a passion to gather together some of the greatest musical instruments ever made by the hand of man. A cello, perhaps, by Stradivari, a violin by Amati, a viola by Guneri. Sometimes they collect violin bows as well, such as those by the great French makers Tort and Sartori. David Fulton is one in that long line of passionate collectors. He lives in Bellevue, Washington, and I drove up from my home in Olympia recently to meet him and ask him about his life and the rare and remarkable instruments in his collection. We set up for the interview in his living room that looks out from atop a high bluff on the blue waters of Lake Washington with the occasional rumble of a powerboat passing by. A violin maker from Iceland named Hans Johansson was visiting David and a selection of David's instruments were laid out on tables for Hans to examine. While I quickly discovered that David has a flair for storytelling, and our conversation was far-ranging. In fact, I decided there was more than enough to make two radio programs. This program is the first, and is titled The Making of a Collector. The second program is titled Stories from the Collection. But first, let's allow one of the violins in David's collection to cast its spell upon us. The violin was made in 1719 by Antonio Stradivari in his shop in Cremona, Italy, and is called the Duke of Alba. It is played by James Ennis.
So how does that first violin come into someone's life? And how long is it until a better violin comes along, one with a sweeter tone, perhaps, or a tad more volume? Here is David's account of his own musical journey that began in childhood and is embellished with family lore that can help us better understand this modern-day violin collector. In those days, you had to take music as a regular subject in grammar school. You had an hour of music every day. And our teacher, uh, whom I admired very much, was a flute player. And when it came time, when I was in the fourth grade, to pick an instrument to play, they asked me what I wanted to play, and I said, I'd like to play the flute. But they'd run out of flutes, so they gave me a violin instead. So at that point, I became, for the first time and last time in my life, the most skilled player in my immediate group. I was uh, the top dog in the fourth grade at Lincoln School in Dayton, Ohio. <laughs> You've written a biography or autobiography about your involvement with the violin over the years, and uh, so I got to read some of that before the interview here. So uh, tell me about, uh, well, I love the, <laughs> you, you had the teacher, but I also love the, the name Mr. Sinks. Yes. Uh, it sounded like something straight out of Charles Dickens. It really did. It really it? does. He, he was a very nice man, actually. So tell me the story about Mr. Sinks and well, his, his he involvement. he was just a very nice man who went to my dad's church. My dad was a preacher in those days, and uh, he was to the end of his life, actually. Mr. Sinks was one of the parishioners, and I had been given this horrible violin that they were renting from the school. I think it was made out of wood. I'm not quite sure. It sounded like it was made of plywood. But in any case, uh, he said, well, your son's working on the violin. Why, I, I have an old violin in the attic. And he hauled out this old German violin, and that's what I played on for the next 20-odd years, was that violin that he'd given me. I think he, he died after a while. He was not in good health. But at any rate, that was the violin I had. And I took it to school, and my teacher at school, who was a trumpet player, actually, said it was a very good violin, so I was very pleased. Let's talk about your dad and uh, and your mom, and also going back even a generation or two before that. Let's let's put you in the picture of how your family, and how you came into the world, and and your dad's particularly his work. Well, uh, actually, if you go back a generation or two, it gets kind of lurid. My grandfather was a gunfighter, and he was in fact the protege of Doc Holliday's. His name was uh, Paul Smiley, and he, uh, uh, as a young man. Holiday took him under his arm, and uh, he grew up, and uh, he went to Tombstone. He was there at the time of the gunfight at the O.K. Corral. I mean, the truth of the matter is my grandfather was a genuine Western character. He really was. He was the uh, authentic thing. And uh, I know the stories weren't made up for the simple reason my mother, when she was a young woman, went to San Francisco and met with two of his old associates. One was called Cyclone Bill, and you can look him up on the Internet. The other one was called Tarantula Ike. Uh, he was called that because he was so bow-legged, he looked like a spider walking along, I gather. Uh, they didn't pronounce it tarantula. They pronounced it Trantler Ike. <laughs> anyway. and, and they said, you know, your father really, you must write down some of his adventures. He had one most remarkable, remarkable life. At any rate, Jerome, Arizona at that time, uh, a few years later, was uh, a copper mining town and copper smelting town. And uh, he founded some saloons there, which my brother told me were full-service establishments indeed. I think it had, uh, they had gambling, they had liquor downstairs, and I think they had women upstairs too. It was very much an Old West figure. And uh, uh, 
Now, is this on your mother or your father's this side? This is my mother's father. And uh, there's kind of a story very much like Guys and Dolls. So he is running the saloon in what was then characterized as the wickedest town in the United States. I don't know if it really was or not, but it was a pretty wicked town, being a copper mining town. And uh, the Salvation Army came to town. A young Salvation Army captain named Emma Rucker came to town. And uh, he took kind of a shine to her. And she would come by the saloon selling her war cries, their publication. With her tambourine. Well, I don't know if she had a tambourine, but she had a stack of war cries. My grandfather would buy all of her war cries so they could sit and talk. And I still have the originals of their correspondence, which is very fun to read. Because uh, she says, uh, he, he writes to her and says, my princess, my goddess, perfect creature, and so on and so forth. Very flowery language, a lot of misspellings. She would write back, Mr. Smiley, I don't know what's wrong with you. You must leave me alone. And finally, the, the penultimate letter in that batch, she writes to him and says, you say you want to marry me. You say it has to be now or never. It'll have to be never dot, dot, dot. Don't say never. The very next day they were married. And this love affair was written up in the local newspaper on three or four occasions. And finally, they did get married, and the Salvation Army left town, as the Salvation Army captain had married one of the town's most notable sinners. <laughs> so, so he didn't reform. He, oh, no, he never reformed. Oh, okay. uh, I think my mother pestered him until he became saved on his deathbed when he was dying of cancer. But I think it was probably to shut her up, would be my guess. So your mother, though, she, she was a religious woman? Well, my mother, my, my grandmother uh, was very religious, and she kind of indoctrinated my mother in it. And my dad was not. He, he worked for uh, the uh, Anaconda Copper Company, I think, no, I think it was called that, in, in Jerome, actually in Clarkdale, down in the valley from Jerome. Jerome's up on a hill. was famous because the jail was sliding down the hill inch by inch. I think it's now a tourist destination. But in any case, uh, he was working there in charge of the company uh, stores, and uh, he would come to the saloon and gamble with my grandfather, which is where he met my mother. And they got married, and finally my mother... Uh, I don't know if you've heard of Amy Semple McPherson. Amy Semple McPherson is a famous evangelist. She's, fam she's been made into movies and things. I mean, I think she was the model for uh, Sister Sharon Wagoner in Elmer Gantry, in all probability. Some people think that, in any rate. So there was a big scandal because she ran away and said she was kidnapped. In fact, she was all shacked up with somebody. At any rate, my mother pestered my father until she got him to go to one of her services. And he got saved. So he got saved. And then while he was still working for um, the copper company, uh, he started founding little churches, which he did. And he founded, he reckoned, maybe 10 different little churches. And finally was invited to move to Eugene and take over the pastorate of a church called Lighthouse Temple. And he was in that job for 13 years. Then he became general chairman of Open Bible Standard Churches, which was a Pentecostal denomination. And then he became, upon his retirement from that job, the general chairman of the Pentecostal Fellowship of North America, which is, includes the Assemblies of God, a huge, huge organization. Um, in my case, all of that didn't take. Uh, I was saved when I was 10, and I started backsliding when I was 11, and uh, have never really looked back. At the moment, I'm Jewish, so, and for the rest of my life, I think. So the services you went to, 
Was there speaking in tongues? Oh, my, yes. Speaking in tongues was a big thing. Um, glossolalia, I think it's actually called, if you're a theologian. At any rate, uh, speaking in tongues was a, a big thing. Everybody did it. And uh, you were supposed to, uh, after you got saved, there was a next step, which was the infilling of the Holy Spirit. And the idea was when that happened, then you were uh, moved by the Spirit. You could then speak in tongues and heal people and so forth. And um, yes, every morning service, some guy would get up and speak in tongues, and then uh, people would sit quietly praying, and eventually someone would stand up and give the interpretation, which was usually remarkably pedestrian and inevitably delivered in uh, King James English. I'm not entirely sure why the Holy Spirit can't speak in colloquial English, but in any case, uh, that was the case. So that's, that's the environment I grew up in. I was not allowed at that point to dance. I was not allowed, of course, to go to movies. I was not allowed to do anything that was fun, really. My mother didn't even believe in what she called, quote, mixed swimming, by which she meant boys and girls in the same swimming pool together. I suppose their slick bodies moving against one another she thought was in some way lewd. But at any rate, so I was very happy when I went off to the University of Chicago at age 16 because uh, I could go to movies, and I did. I went to many movies a week. The fact that your mom and dad, they were very strict about popular culture. And since much of the art that we experience in life, especially as children, comes out of popular culture, you really only had one area that they sort of, in art, felt was legitimate and was okay, and that was classical music. That's exactly correct. And it was the, the acceptable outlet. When I was a teenager, I uh, didn't have a car, of course, and I wasn't dating. I mean, women, I thought, were utterly mysterious. I was amazed they spoke the same language. Come to think of it, I'm not sure they do. But at any rate, uh, it was one of the permissible things. I, I could, for example, go to orchestra rehearsals, and, and my social life at that point centered around music and, and the orchestra I played in. Yeah, you were talking about that in the music camps and how important they were for you. Just a little bit about that experience. Well, the University of Oregon had and probably still has a superb music program. That was one of the, I think, the jewels of that particular university. And they had some very, very good people there. Well, every summer they had a music camp for the high school kids. And uh, it was really wonderful. I got to go to the camp every day and, and play in the orchestra. I got to hold a girl's hand for the first time. That was really fun. But it was, for me, uh, a tremendous experience because it was also a chance to perform. I didn't really get a chance to perform apart from in an orchestra, and um, that was fun. Here again is James Ennis playing a viola from David's collection made in 1560 by Gaspara Bertolotti.
I went to the University of Chicago and I was playing on my old German violin, the same one Mr. Sinks had given me so many years before. And which, and its chief virtue was it was loud. Of course, 747's loud, but in any case, it was my violin. And um, when I was a senior, I'd been concertmaster of the University of Chicago Orchestra. Now, don't be impressed. The University of Chicago does not have a performance department there, musicology and composition, that sort of thing. So I wasn't competing with people who intend to be musicians like Juilliard or Curtis. At any rate, as concertmaster, uh, two wonderful things happened the last year I was at Chicago. Wonderful thing one was I got a hundred dollar a quarter stipend so I could give up my dishwashing job that I'd had for three years. Wonderful thing number two, though, which is more significant, is an alumnus had given the university a violin, a testori violin, a fine violin. And uh, because I was concertmaster, I was given that violin to play. And the first time I put it under my chin, a conductor was there in his office. He said, you play more in tune on that, I think. It might even have been true, I don't know. At any rate, I certainly enjoyed that fiddle. And uh, because of that violin, and because it was so inspiring to me, uh, I, 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 I started playing a lot, performing a lot. Uh, it was in chamber music groups. I played uh, solo recitals. We, uh, I think I'd give two or three concerts a quarter that last year. And basically inspired by that violin, wow, all of a sudden I could do stuff that I could not do on my own violin. So I was very, very much in love with that instrument. And one thing I did with it, I used it, it was, it was an entree to a world I couldn't get to otherwise. I, I saw what a difference that violin had made in my playing and my ability to perform, that I went down to William Lewis and Son, at that time the big dealer in Chicago, and uh, I said, I, I've got this testory violin here, and uh, maybe uh, I'm thinking of upgrading. Maybe you could show me some other things. So they hauled out a Strad, a Guadagnini, this and that. And uh, I loved that Guadagnini. The sound of that Guadagnini was in my ear for the next 20 years after that. I mean, I, it was wonderful. I, I lusted after one of those. I think the violin at that time cost $10,000. And, you know, I could have easily walked on the moon and then come up with $10,000, of course. And you're saying that the owners of the shop maybe didn't realize that exactly because you came in with this test story. Of course. Yes. Yeah, so they, they thought I owned the test story. <laughs> of course, the university owned the test story. And so he allowed me to try other violins. And finally, I think I, I, I played them enough that I bored him and I think I finally had to leave. But that was a seminal event for me because... Uh, I, for that, from that point on, I had the sound of these great violins in my mind. And then what happened to that violin? Oh, my. What happened to that violin, that testory violin? Uh, I, 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 there's a terrazzo floor in the dormitory I lived in, and I had the violin in its case standing vertically uh, next to my uh, chest of drawers there in the room. And one of my friends came in gesturing expansively and knocked the thing on the floor and it went bang on that terrazzo floor and the back broke in three pieces. And I felt, I, 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 was, I was aghast. I thought it was horrible. I went to Colin Slim, who was our conductor, and I said, I, I, I nearly in tears. He was so kind to me, he really was. He said, it can be made just as good as new, no problem at all. Of course, that's not true. But I felt, I felt guilty about that for years which is one reason I gave the university some years later a test story cello, which is now being played by the uh, principal cellist in the orchestra. And uh, I also built a recital hall for them. <laughs>
but I felt I felt so guilty about that. I, I still do. It was so it's un, unforgivably careless. But uh, that's what happened to that test story. What was your age at this point? Because we're we're just assuming you're at college like any other person at the same age. But you went to college quite early, didn't you? Well, yeah. I mean, I I uh, managed to get myself admitted to the University of Chicago when I was 15. At that time, they had uh, uh, an early entrance program, and uh, one of the high school teachers, uh, by coincidence, heard about a good friend of mine. His father owned a gas station. And in the gas station, one of the high school teachers that I didn't know was moonlighting. Apparently, they paid high school teachers then about as well as they do now, moonlighting in a gas station. And my friend told him he thought I was very bright because he used to help my friend with his geometry homework. So the teacher contacted me and he said, there was this program at the University of Chicago uh, that allowed you to enter the University of Chicago early. Uh, Robert Maynard Hutchins had put that program in place in the 30s. And uh, I heard about that, and I said, well, all right, I'll, I'll apply. And uh, my parents uh, my parents were self-educated. This was not uncommon in their era because, frankly, at the turn of the last century, going to college was more a matter of uh, social status and money, and very many people were self-educated. Anyway... They, it was not on their radar screen. They, they said, well, go ahead and apply because they thought there was no way in the world I could get in. Well, I did get in with a full scholarship, and I think, I think maybe the determining factor was, in fact, that the violin people in town, the orchestra conductor and so on, wrote glowing recommendations of me. And so it actually helped, I think. So I went off to the University of Chicago. I was 16 by the time I actually matriculated. And... Uh, Frankly, I, I think it was very ill-advised, you know. The last two years of high school are when you learn so many things, uh, how to socialize, you date for the first time, uh, you have your first love, you have your first heartbreak, and I had missed all of that. So uh, I was not really ready for college. And I think it's not just emotional maturity. I think you get mature intellectually as well. I think if any one of my children had wanted to do such a thing, I'd have absolutely tried to discourage it as much as I could. But my parents said, fine, and I got in with full scholarship, and at that point, they could hardly say no. So the university, they, of course, blamed my, my moving away from the church and the godless professors at the University of Chicago. The truth is that Robert Heinlein and Isaac Asimov had more to do with it than Chicago did. <laughs> what year was that? That was 1960. 1960. There is a goodly measure of psychology that goes into the art of selling and buying rare violins, as David learned when he traveled to Chicago with his friend to visit a violin shop. I had a friend named Bill Sloan who was a certifiable fiddle nut. He loved music, he loved violins, he loved everything about it. And uh, I ran into him quite by accident uh, 13 years after I left Chicago in Toledo at an opera. And he was... Uh, as I say, certifiable fiddle nut. He, he loved violins. He still does. He, at this point in time, is actually making them. He loves them so much. At any rate, uh, we would play string quartets together, and we started socializing. And there came a time when he was discontent with the instrument he had, and he decided it was time to buy a Strad. Now, he's a urologist, and as a result, he could afford it. Of course, I was a professor. I couldn't. 
So he asked me if I would come to Chicago, because Mine and Fushi by then was the big shop in Chicago, come with him to Chicago when he was going to pick up his thread. And so I said, all right, fine. So we drove to Chicago, and while he was getting his thread adjusted in one thing or another, the guys at Bain and Fushi put out that they have a long velvet-covered table there in a room that has perfect acoustics, which in the trade, I'm told, is called an ego chamber. Uh, that's because everyone sounds perfect and wonderful in it. It's rather like singing in the shower, you know, where everyone sounds like Pavarotti or, or Maria Callas or someone like that. At any rate, so you're playing these instruments and the, the sound is just enveloping you. And, and they, they don't, uh, I mean, these are very valuable things, but they just leave the room and there you are playing them. And what, what happens is you fall in love with the instrument you see. They know that. They don't have to sell them. The instrument sells itself because you sound terrific on it. Anyway, they had, uh, I don't know what all the violins were, but one I fell in love with was a lovely little Guarneri, and not the famous Guarneri, not Guarneri del Gesù, but his uncle, uh, uh, Peter Guarneri of Mantua. And uh, I fell in love with that violin. I played that violin for four hours while my friend was getting his violin adjusted. And uh, finally, it came time to go home. It was around Thanksgiving, and I, I said to Robert Bine, Robert, I can't, there's no way in the world I can afford that violin. I, I am a professor, I can't buy something like that. He said, I know you can't afford it. How much was it? I think it was 110 or 120,000, something like that. It was a lot of money. Well, to put it in perspective, it was way more than the house I lived in was worth, okay? And so I said, Robert, there's no way in the world, I probably called him Mr. Bryan at that point, there's no way in the world I can afford that thing. There's no way in the world. He said, I know you can't afford it. He said, I understand that. But Thanksgiving is coming up, and why don't you just take it home and enjoy it? Take it home. And I know you're sending it back after Thanksgiving, but just take it home and enjoy it. There's no obligation whatsoever. Bill will have to come back and have other adjustments done. So I said, okay. Now, I can imagine drug dealers do the same thing. You know, here's a little bit of uh, crack cocaine. Uh, try it. You'll like it. Just, you don't no obligation. Just give it a sniff, you know. It was like that, really. So the next thing I knew, I was down at Toledo Trust working out a loan to buy the violin. I bought the violin, a loan secured by, just like having a mortgage on a house. I bought that violin, and I made payments on it for a long time. Finally, I owned it outright, but that was much later. <laughs> That's wonderful. And so you, you played that for a long time? Then. I played that violin for the next 20-odd years, yeah. I did. And uh, what about your friend? I mean, he was also oh, taking Oh, no, my it. friend, my friend had, he bought a violin called the Holroyd Strad. It's the first one. The Holroyd uh, is the very violin that Elmar Oliveira won the Tchaikovsky competition with. That was Bill Sloan's first violin, a 1727 Strad. Uh, neither he nor I ever liked it much. Now, I might point out that the violin could do the job if you had the right people on the other end of it. Oliveira did just fine. He won the Tchaikovsky competition. But Bill wanted something better. So he went off and uh, came in one day with this beautiful golden violin, a 1714 Strad called the Leonor Jackson Strad. It's a wonderful, wonderful sounding instrument. He has it to this moment. He still has it. But at that time, the interest rates were way up, and I think he had to, he took on a tremendous obligation at that point, even for a urologist. I think he had an interest rate. The interest rate was well over 8% or 8 or 9% tremendous. But at any rate, we, we spent the next number of years, Bill and I, would go backstage, he with his Strad, and me with my little Peter of Mantua Guarneri, and uh, 
everyone was always interested in the Strad, and the Guarneri would kind of sulk over in the corner. Because you no, know, he would. He was very gentle. He was very genteel about it. He was very thoughtful. He'd say, "You should try that little Guarneri over there. That's a great violin." They'd play a few notes, then go back to the Strad. So at any rate, that's what happened. <laughs> For years and years, we did that. So when do you think the moment that you decided that you, despite everything else you were going to do in life, whether it was your professional career, which we haven't talked about, or your um, or playing music, when did you say, I'm going to become a collector in a, in a serious way? Well, uh, it was a little later. I bought my first Strad. I, I, by then, I knew a lot about, or knew something I didn't read about violins. And so when finally my financial situation came to the point where I could afford one, I decided I wanted a Strad. I wanted a good one. I wanted one of the na- ones with a name. They all have names, but there are some that are more famous than others. I wanted one that everybody knew, and I wanted, uh, I wanted a golden period Strad. What does that mean? Well, Stradivari, who made violins from the time he was 10 years old, uh, he was born in 1644, to the time he died in 1737, he lived to be 93 years old, uh, he was continually improving and changing the model of the violins. But the, his greatest violins are in the early 1700s, uh, maybe from 1709 through perhaps 1718 or 19. And that's referred to as his golden period. Anyway, I wanted one of the golden period strats. And uh, believe it or not, they sprung up like winter wheat. I mean, uh, they'd come to me. If you're interested in buying a great violin, it's no problem at all. You don't have to worry about finding when they find you. So anyway, finally, the Baron Knoop, uh, K-N-O-O-P, that's spelled. Some say Knoop, some say Knoop. I say Knoop. I don't know what the correct pronunciation is. Anyway, he was a very famous collector of the past. And the Baron Knoop, when it came to this country, it was called in 1904, 1902, whenever Hills wrote their great book, it was called the Bevan Violin. But they renamed it the Knoop uh, when it came to this country in 1927 because uh, they were naming it after their great customer, Baron Johannes Knoop. And uh, I bought that violin, and uh, that was wonderful. And I enjoyed having it. It was a great, great violin. How old um, were you when you bought that? Mm, let me think for a minute. Oh, I would have been in my early 40s, I think, at that point. Something like that. David earned his Ph.D. in mathematics and then went on to establish one of the first university computer science programs in the country. But it was his success developing and then selling to Microsoft the popular FoxPro database software that brought him wealth and the ability to purchase expensive violins and bows. But first he had to decide what instruments and bows he wanted in his collection. Many rare instruments are owned by institutions, such as museums and foundations, and those that remain in private hands seldom come up for sale. But when they do, the transaction can sometimes provide the material for a pretty good story, including eccentric characters and unexpected twists and turns. I read somewhere that Yasha Heifetz used to have a Strad and a Del Gesù. The two great violin makers are Antonio Stradivari and Giuseppe Guarneri. And he's often called Del Gesù because he put a little cross on his label. Now, I don't think he was particularly religious. I think he put the cross on his label like a, like a house brand, like a, like a trademark. That was his trademark. 
and he would be very surprised, no doubt, to hear himself called Del Jesu. That terminology was given to him in the 19th century. So those are the two great makers. I heard that Heifetz had Strad and Del Jesu in, in one case, in a double case. And I thought that sounded like a great idea. I wanted to do that. And so I started looking for Del Jesus, and, and I found one, the Haddock Del Jesu, my first one, a 1734 instrument. And uh, I'd worked out a deal with Bayan Fushi to trade in my little Peter Mantua, my little Guarneri that I'd had for many years, for that Del Jesu. And we'd worked out the price and everything. It all worked out. And Robert was there with the Del Jesu, and it's time to give him the Petrus, and I couldn't do it. I couldn't give it to him. At that point, I realized I was in trouble. And so that was really the foundation of the collection. You <laughs> ask about, about chasing violins? Well, I'll tell you a couple stories about that. La Pucelle is a very good one. La Pucelle is a 1709 Stradivari. I got a call one day from Charles Beer, the great dealer, and the greatest expert in the world. He said, David, I have a violin for you. It's the finest Stradivari that you'll ever be offered. And I said, well, that's pretty persuasive. Which one is it? And he said, La Pucelle. Now, the evening before, by sheer coincidence, we'd been in a restaurant, and I'd ordered a bottle of wine, uh, Montrachet, called uh, Les Pucelles, uh, which means the virgins. And uh, I... I asked the sommelier what, where that came from. He said it was just the name of the vineyard. Well, it is, in fact, the name of the vineyard. I probably named, I'm guessing, for a convent nearby or something like that. So Beer says, what's La Pucelle? I said, ah, oh, the virgin. He said, your French is very good, really. And I said, it had nothing to do with it. I just had the bottle of wine. Well, listen, I had to buy the violin, didn't I? I it, by coincidence, I just had the wine the night before. It's become our house wine. At any rate... Um, so um, Beer says, uh, you have to make the decision. I said, well, bring, bring it on out. I'll take a look at it. Explain how it got its name. Oh, La Pucelle? Sure. Uh, La Pucelle means, well, the great dealer and, and violin maker and, and expert in the mid-1800s was Viom. And Viom looked at the violin. He saw that violin. It was brought into his shop by a man named Tarissio. And uh, he opened the violin up. The top is often taken off violins for maintenance purposes. Took the top off, and to his utter astonishment, it had not been opened since it left Stradivari's workshop. He could tell from the state of the blocks and all the other things that had never been opened. And he said, why, it's, it's like a virgin, come in Pucelle. It's never been opened. And so the name stuck. And uh, Viome, in fact, and if you look at the violin, has a tailpiece and pegs made by Viome. On the tailpiece is... A woman in armor, that, of course, is Jeanne d'Arc, the, the maid of Orleans. So at any rate, that's where the violin got its name. Well, Beer says uh, to me, well, this violin is now available. I said, well, that's, that's lovely. Bring it out. He said, I can't. He said, uh, the woman who owns it will not let it out of her possession. I said, well, I'll, I'll, I'll come to New York at some point and look at it then. He said, no, a decision has to be made by this weekend because if you, we don't buy it by this weekend, they're going to put it in the auction. I said, hmm. He said, I said, it's the best one that will ever be offered to me, right? He said, yeah. I said, I said, okay, I'll take it. He said, silence at the other end of the line. He said, in that case, I'm going to go to New York and take another look. And so he did. He called me up from there and he said, uh, 
it's better than I thought. <laughs> and so I bought it. And it, La Pucelle came, and it is a gorgeous, gorgeous thing. Then Beer told the story of his going to look at the violin, which was itself quite interesting. He goes to New York, and he goes to the front door of this uh, mansion on, on Fifth Avenue. And the delivery doorman at the door says, well, you go around to the tradesman's entrance in the back. So Beer goes around to the tradesman's entrance in the back. He's met by a young man who conducts him to the cobwebbed cellars over to an elevator. He goes up in the elevator, and it opens into the scullery, into the uh, where the dishes were washed, in this kitchen. The elevator opens directly into the kitchen. And he, he said one thing that struck him is there was, there was a glass-fronted case with nothing but silver teapots in it. Anyway, on a, on a steel-top table there is this violin and a couple others. So he looks at the violins, and it is what it's supposed to be, and he's about to leave, and the young man says, I could be fired for this, but you need to see some of the stuff in here. And so he's taken into the dining room, 40 feet long dining room. Uh, all the furniture in it is old English furniture, Chippendale, Hipplewhite, that sort of thing. And uh, on the walls, on one wall, he sees one of the huge Monet water lily paintings. On another wall are a couple of Van Goghs. At the end of that dining room is a very famous Renoir. Fine. Okay. And he goes into the next room with the man and is uh, shown a bunch of tailor's dummies with kimonos on them and some very fine paintings of uh, women in Japanese geisha garb. And then he shows him a magazine from, I think, the 20s, uh, one of the national magazines, I'm not sure which one, Time or Newsweek, something like that, with a picture of the owner, a woman named Huguette Clark, coming to this country with the Renoir. And Huguette Clark, as it turns out, is this very reclusive woman. How reclusive? Well, the man he's dealing with, he never meets her. The man he's dealing with, her attorney, says that he's never met her. His predecessor in the firm, who's been her attorney for 30 years, has not met her. Um, and more and more comes out about this woman. Finally, there was a huge series of articles by a man named Bill Dedman, who's a reporter for MSNBC.com. This woman, it turns out, has a an estate called Bellasguardo in Santa Barbara. That's a huge estate, famous one, uh, which is maintained fully staffed with servants there at all times, uh, with her favorite flowers in the vases, with her favorite food in the refrigerator. She's not set foot in the place for 10 years. She has an estate in upstate Connecticut that she's never been to. Uh, very strange. Bill Dedman, this reporter, is an investigative reporter, finally starts looking into it. The woman is, when I did this uh, transaction with her, I think she was 94 or 95. She died at age 104 not too long ago. And there was a great fuss because it was thought that perhaps her attorney and her accountant were taking advantage of her. The woman had been living for the last 20-odd years in a hospital room. She'd not been in, oh, I should mention, her apartment on Fifth Avenue was the largest apartment on Fifth Avenue. Unbelievable. Forty rooms. Forty rooms. Bill Dedman wrote a book called Empty Mansions, which I think was on the New York Times bestseller list, about this woman, Huguette Clark. Her father was a man named William Clark, who, uh, there's a Clark County, Nevada, that's named after him. He was also, this is very interesting, the owner of the, the copper smelter where my father used to work. It's conceivable my father met the guy. This is very interesting. And, uh, and Huguette Clark is highly eccentric. She, well, William Andrews Clark, 
is a remarkable man. Mark Twain said of him that he was, quote, the rottenest man under the flag. He was the chairman of the Constitutional Convention in the state of, I believe, it was Montana. And in 1900, it was said that he was either as rich or richer than Rockefeller. He has, if you go to the Berkeley campus, you'll see many Clark, this is in Clark, that's. The paintings that were in Hugh Getz's apartment there in New York, which had belonged to her mother before, were the foundation, the Corcoran Gallery in Washington, D.C., was founded on Clark's art collection. William Andrews Clark had the distinction of being one of the first senators from the state of Montana. He also had the distinction of being one of the first senators for being expelled from the Senate for voting irregularities. And then he was reelected again. He was one of the original robber barons. He owned railroads. He owned. Uh, he created Las Vegas. Then uh, he, amongst other things, owned the copper mine and the smelter where my father worked. <laughs> so I always I own his daughter's violin. It's fun. That's quite a story. It's what. It's a wonderful story. Uh, Bill Dedman's book is terrific. He's he's a very good writer and and he turned up all kinds of stuff. I mean the woman went into the hospital for a procedure, and she felt secure there. Well, Beer was told on his visit that she would live in one small set of rooms in that huge apartment. And then when she thought they were getting too close, she moved to another set of rooms, in another set of rooms. She wasn't crazy. She was deeply eccentric uh, and very smart, I mean, negotiating. La Pucelle, when I bought it, I was presented with a contract I was supposed to sign that said... I could not reveal I owned the violin. I could not reveal when I bought it. I could not reveal which violin it was. I could not say from whom I got it or what city or the gender of the seller. I couldn't have played it in front of my wife, according to that contract. Finally, I wrote back, I, I said to Beer, I said, she needs to decide whether she's going to sell it or not because I'm not going to deal with those things. I said, look, she can't take it with her and she can't control it. I said, uh, Charlemagne, they say, was buried with his hands outside his coffin because he was demonstrating to all and sundry that he was taking nothing with him. And she can't take the violin with her. <laughs> and uh, finally, I signed the very uh, tepid agreement that simply said that I would not reveal for 10 years from whom I'd bought it. And, and that, that fortunately had expired by the time Deadman did his article. So, I remember the... Uh the television show I was quite fond of as a kid was The Millionaire. Remember that show? Yeah. And yeah. that had some yeah. stipulation. The James Bedford Tipton <laughs> yeah. was the millionaire. Yeah, but you couldn't, people you couldn't yeah. reveal the, how you got the money. And that's if you right. did, it would be taken back. Well, that, that's, that's one of the more interesting stories. And then another one I might mention is the acquisition of the Lord Wilton del Jesu. Now, this was a violin that was uh, belonged to Lord Menuhin, the great, great violinist and humanitarian who died. And uh, it's the one Del Jesu, I've, I've owned in my life seven Del Jesus, which is quite a lot actually, and very good ones. But this is the one that I lusted after really. There was a show in New York in 94 uh, showing Guarneri's, there were I think 26 different Guarneri Del Jesus in it. And that's the one. So I looked at it and Emmanuel dies, right? So I get from his solicitors in, I believe it was in Geneva, might have been Zurich, I'm not sure, I don't remember now. A note saying that on such a date, we will entertain bids for the Lord Wilton del Jesu. And when we receive those bids, we'll consider what to do. Uh, very, very mysterious, really. Uh, would they take the highest bid? 
Uh, was there a reserve? What were they doing? Would they then turn around and say, would you like to bid more? I, so I was very irritated because it seemed like a very unbusinesslike way to do things. And I made no bones. I said, I may not bid on it. I can't deal with that kind of a situation. And I said, uh, you know, in any case, I, I'm sure they want too much. There's no way I would pay more than $5 million for that violin. And I made no bones about my dissatisfaction or the fact that I was not going to pay more than $5 million. I was agonizing over it because I really wanted the violin. I mean, why collect things? Well, you develop at some point sort of a uh, endemic, green-eyed craving and lust for these things. And I really wanted that violin. So the time came to send in the bid. I sort of said to myself, do I want it or do I not want it? So I bid $6 million. Now, it turned out that um, they accepted the bid, and I have the violin now. It's probably the greatest Del Jesu that's not in a museum. No question about that in my mind. But anyway, I found out later that one of our competitors, a foundation in Japan, had bid uh, $5,050,000. Apparently, my comment that I wouldn't pay more than $5 million had gotten around. And to this day, they, they don't like me. They think I outwitted them on that. But it wasn't. It was just agony on my part. I was agonizing over it, whether I wanted to buy it or not. So I bought it. That's that. Certainly my most valuable instrument, my most valuable violin anyway. Let's listen now to James Ennis play the La Pucelle, the violin made by Antonio Stradivari in 1709. Thank you for listening to Rosin the Bow, an audio journey through the world of the violin family. 
Rosin the Bow is produced by Joe and Paula McHugh in the studios of the Raven Radio Theater. Our theme music was arranged and performed by the string quartet, The Fretless. For more information about the Rosin the Bow project and to listen to additional podcasts, please visit our website, rosinthebow.org. Here's a quote from the late, great Leonard Bernstein when asked about the passion for collecting art. Any great work of art revives and readapts time and space, and the measure of its success is the extent to which it makes you an inhabitant of that world.